is up everyone welcome to another episode of self-help witch self-help witch is all about the spiritual side of self-discovery and self-actualizing knowing who we are so we can be our most aligned authentic selves that's what we're all about here I'm Dana, I'm your host, I'm an astrologer and teacher, and I am thrilled to be recording this because I am finally able to speak without coughing every two seconds. I got COVID, um, I think I got it like right around Thanksgiving. It was actually the first time I've gotten it, so I'm super lucky, but also not because I'm in my third trimester of pregnancy. And I definitely would have preferred to have gotten it prior to being pregnant because that shit is scary. I called my doctor and I was like, so what do I do? Like, what do I need to do here? And they were like, well, if you get a fever over 100.4, you need to go to OB triage. I was like, what the fuck? That's so scary. Luckily, it did not come to that. In fact, PSA to all pregnant people take your symptoms seriously even if they seem like normal pregnancy symptoms I had congestion and body aches and my body aches were just in my hips so I was like okay well this is like textbook pregnancy symptoms so I didn't really think much of it and I did have like a very slight fever but only for a day so I thought that maybe I just had a cold and everything else was like typical pregnancy stuff But then like a week after I started feeling bad, my husband took a test and he was positive. So then I was like, all right, well, I'm definitely positive if you're positive. And I was. So I think I had it for like a week before I knew I had it. Anyway, get tested. I'm mostly recovered. Sorry, you do still have to suffer the congestion here, but... Luckily, it's just centralized to the intro of the episode and not the entire episode. I am so excited to bring you today's episode because we are talking to my friend Sarah Cohan. She is an attachment style coach and she and I have a lot in common. First of all, we both are former drinkers and we're both really fascinated by attachment styles. Now she knows way more about them than I do. That's why I'm interviewing her on the show so she can share this information with us, but I wanted to save this episode for the holiday season. We recorded back in like August, but I think that what we're going to talk about will really resonate and help a lot of you out there who have a hard time with the holiday season. I mean, the holidays are hard for a lot of reasons, and I think being around your family of origin or even your in-laws or whoever you consider to be your family can really bring some shit up. Our deepest patterns, truly, because that's where we get them from, is the environment we're raised in. And for many of us, at least some of those patterns are rooted in our attachment style. Now, your attachment style, if you're unfamiliar with this phrasing, it just refers to your approach to relating in relationships based on what you were modeled and how you were cared for as a child. So... Sarah clearly is going to explain all of the ins and outs of this in the episode, but essentially there's four primary styles, and right now we just kind of need to know you can be securely attached or insecurely attached. And just like all things healing, there's not a linear path from insecure to secure, 
right? Most of us kind of bop around depending on what's going on in our lives or how much awareness we're dedicating to the patterns that we have, our self-awareness in general. But when we're around our family of origin or we're in a time of year where we're thinking about our family of origin, we don't even necessarily have to be around them these patterns are going to get brought up again. <laughs> They're going to come up in a big way, especially if we're not aware of them. That's when they tend to be the most prominent. Ironically so, because we might not even realize that we're falling back into these habits. But it's really important that we are aware of them because what can happen when we're not is we self-sabotage. We do things that we really don't mean to do. We say things. We treat people in a way that isn't helpful. And not just other people, but the way we treat ourselves can get really shitty. <laughs> it can get really convoluted and really problematic. We can treat ourselves poorly. The other piece of this is that Addiction can play a role in your attachment style. So I have talked a lot on the show about codependency and being, an, well, not a lot about being an anxiously attached person, but I am. And Sarah and I kind of talk about like the intricacies of that. But if you're talking about codependency, you're also talking about addiction to some extent or substance use and abuse. And if you've been around a while, you know that that was actually like the reason that I started Self-Help Witch. I had quit drinking and I wanted to create a space for people to feel okay with making that choice. Because for me in my journey, it was, uh, it felt like an unacceptable choice to the communities that I belonged to at that time. So it was really lonely and hard. And I wanted to create community for people around that. But I also realized in my sobriety how much of a crutch drinking was and how much it actually wasn't helping me at all. It was, in fact, making it harder for me to find fulfillment and happiness. And once I learned the language of like codependency and attachment styles, what I also realized was how a, my drinking patterns and habits played a role in what I wasn't getting. Because really what your attachment style is, and Sarah talks about this, is an attachment strategy. It's how you learn to connect with people. And for me and a lot of people who identify as codependent or anxiously attached, drinking plays an integral role in how you connect with people. And what I realized was I had believed on some level subconsciously along the way that I could not connect with people without alcohol. And I think that that is true for a lot of us on some level because of the society we live in, because of maybe the families we were raised in, because of the social anxiety we might be dealing with, because of our beliefs about how lovable or not lovable we are. For what a variety of reasons. Drinking has become such a central part of the way we do almost everything. The way we celebrate, the way we commiserate, the way we wind down at the end of the day, the way we socialize. And ultimately, it absolutely plays a role in how we connect with other people, which is what attachment styles and strategies are all about. So Sarah, I wanted to talk with her because I wanted to to talk with an expert about how these things are all connected 
and what we can start to do to unravel them in order to understand ourselves and our needs more thoroughly and more clearly. And I will say, you know, you don't need to want to be sober or sober curious to get something out of this episode. It's so important for us to just explore these questions of like, why do I do this in relationships? Why do I feel like the need to compulsively text my husband? Or why do I feel nervous to go to a social function if I'm not drinking? That, that's a question that I very actively ignored for a long, long time. But what I wish I would have known sooner was how much better I would feel without drinking. Because I thought it was helping me for so long. And in fact, what it was doing was making me more sad, more disconnected, more unsure of myself. And it really exacerbated my existing depression and anxiety, which, duh, like you're ingesting a fucking depressant on a daily basis or a near daily basis in my case. And it's not only going to make you feel sad, but it's going to cloud your ability to look inward and understand what's really going on. I just thought there was something wrong with me inherently. And the truth was, I just needed to stop drinking for a little bit <laughs> to understand where those feelings were coming from and get a clear head. And again, I know that sobriety from drinking is not going to be the choice for everyone, and that is okay. That's not what this episode is about. This episode is about understanding your needs from the lens of what was I taught about relationships and what did I learn I need to do to get connection with people? And how perhaps does drinking or any kind of activity that takes me away from myself play a role in that? These are powerful questions to ask if you're on a healing journey, and I think they're worthwhile. So that is why we're bringing this episode to you today. We are digging into this intersection of attachment styles and addiction, how they feed one another, and how when you're aware of both, you can really begin to heal on a whole new level. So I hope that this brings some support to you as you navigate the holidays, especially if you're spending time with your family of origin. If you're interested in working with Sarah, which you will be after listening to this because she's fantastic, her information is in the show notes you can connect with her, get on her email and wait list. Run, don't walk, because she's been doing a lot of learning. She's had firsthand experience, which you'll hear about on the show. She is absolutely someone I would trust with this work. So that information is all in the show notes for you. I'm also planning on opening my birth chart reading books for a very limited time before my baby arrives. They're due on February 15th. We'll see when they come, but... I will be opening like for a super brief period of time around the end of the holidays. So I'm going to open that up to my email list first. And I'm betting that it's going to get booked out through the email list because it's that limited. But if you would like to know when the booking window is open, make sure you are getting my emails. You can sign up for them 
in the show notes. And when you do, you'll also get access to my birth chart blueprint, which is my free ebook with all of the sticks for how to read your birth chart yourself. So get on that email list, get on Sarah's wait list. And in the meantime, please enjoy this episode with Sarah Cohan about attachment style and addiction. All right. I'm here with Sarah Cohan of the Lit As Fuck podcast. You say Lit AF. I said Lit AF, but I liked it when you said the full thing. That was dope. (laughs) The fuck word. We love it. Yes. So Sarah, we are talking about attachment theory and addiction. And this is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a long time, just as someone who's dealt with it myself and living in St. Louis, where like all people do is drink. It's Mm. kind of something I think about a lot. So I'd love to hear from you how you came into, well, the world of attachment theory, because I know that's what we're getting into, but addiction was kind of the the way in for you, right? Totally, totally. And St. Louis is such a party city. I just want to honor that for a second. And I'm calling from San Francisco, which is also like a party city. You can just, we have the Peter Pan syndrome here where like Mm. people are in their fifties and they're still partying and they're, you know, they haven't settled down, like, which is great. Do what you want to do, but- I love that we're both living in places where like the culture is very prone to drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not questioning it. So I'm, I'm really excited to get into this today, but yeah. So sobriety really was my entry point into attachment style. So I'm really excited to talk to you about it today. So I'm assuming that at one point you were a drinker. Yes, very much so. <laughs> very, very much so. <laughs> I think my first drink was actually at church and communion. And I remember being like, and I grew up in a wealthy neighborhood. I was not, I myself was not wealthy, but um, we had fancy Napa wine served at our church. (laughs) Yeah, like (laughs) legit. So I remember being like feeling kind of this numbing, fuzzy, warm sensation at church when I was drinking. And I was like, huh, this is fun. Like maybe I can do more of this. So... I think I really started drinking around the age of 14, something like that, and really never, ever looked back as soon as I started. I was just like, this is a part of who I am. That's, you know, it became a lot of my identity without me even realizing it. I'm curious, like, did you feel the same way? I was just going to ask you, like, I, I feel like that is a huge reason why people don't stop drinking. I literally would tell people drinking is a part of my culture. And I, I guess it kind of was, you know, Mm. it was a part of everything I did. If you think about what culture means, it's like what we do around here. And Mm -hmm. absolutely. I was a drinker. I was a craft beer aficionado. I was Mm. a wine snob. Like I was all of those things. Yeah. Why do you think that happens? Oh my God. I love that you just said that because it's like, yeah. Why, why do we value the knowledge of drinking so much? Like (laughs) I was too, like this huge wine snob and loved wine tasting. And when I lived in Europe, I did all these beer tours across, you know, Mm -hmm. the, the, the continent. And it was just very much a part of my identity for sure. And, you know, I think it's like once you, once our, I I mean, now I know what was really going on. My subconscious was just had this old habit that met a need. I was meeting a need of relaxing, like communing with people. It's so social. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, you know, it's enjoyment, it's entertainment. And for me, it was a lot of novelty because I would drink all night long and like eventually got into a lot of drugs and would stay up until sunrise. And 
I was having a blast, like a lot of fun, a lot of entertainment. But then eventually I became addicted to that high of like going out and having that, you know, high level of, of energy around me. Mm-hmm. And it made it so that being at home alone was like unbearable, <laughs> which yeah. I'm laughing now. Cause like <laughs> I've been sober for almost three years and like, I love being home alone. It's like my favorite thing. <laughs> you can't like rip me out of this house. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I never thought I would get to this place, but I really, when I think about it, I was meeting those inc- like really important needs to me at the time. And like coming from a super traumatic household, it really like gave me a moment in the day when I felt like relaxed, really, truly. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the social component of drinking. And I think that along with the fact that it helps us relax, at least for me, and I'm curious for you, like I realized after I stopped drinking, how much drinking was helping me with social anxiety. Mm, totally. And just to kind of, like, take it back to the need. Like, why do we identify with this? Well, cause think deep down, I was afraid of being rejected. Totally. If I'm a drinker, then I'm like you and we have something we can talk about now. Like, was that at all a thing for you? For sure. And I, I was so slow to admit that I was like, I'm a social butterfly. You know, our culture really values extroverts and really, you know, being social creatures and, and, and being outside. I say that now, actually after COVID, that almost feels like outdated to say, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that I was, I was really writing that value of our society and never thought of myself as someone that like had this crutch. It really was a crutch of, of drinking in order to be social. And then as soon as I quit drinking, I was like, oh my God, I'm in a room full of people. This is crazy. Where do I start? What do I do? Everyone's watching me. None of these things were true, but like this is where my brain went. So it was totally a crutch to deal with social anxiety that have that has just gone like so untreated throughout my entire life. Yeah. How did you get to the place where you decided to stop drinking? Yeah. Great question. What was my rock bottom? (laughs) (laughs) My rock bottom was, it was, God, it was like literally right before the pandemic. It was in January of 2020. And at the time I was working for Burning Man. Have you heard of Burning Man? Oh yeah. Big old party in the desert. I did. Yeah. It it was cool. It was crazy. It was amazing. It was very life-changing, very transformative. And Along with working for Burning Man, for me, and this is not true for everyone, I'm speaking from my own perspective, there was just a lot of partying. And so I was going out all the time. I was, you know, doing a lot of drugs and 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 I was in this cycle of like staying up all weekend and then being so exhausted throughout the week. But by, by the time the weekend came and I had my energy back up, I was like, now we got to go out and party again. So I think my body was just straight up exhausted. And it was kind of like, I think my body was telling me I needed a break. I was getting chronic migraines with like auric, auric, like what are those called? Like auras. So I would like my vision. I was like, I was doing like acid while my vision was just like tripping balls. And I was like, I'm sober and I'm at work. How is this happening right now? (laughs) So my body was just like giving me all the signals of you got to quit. And for me, this is also wrapped up in quitting smoking as well. So at the time I was 
smoking jewel i don't know are you familiar with oh, yeah. the jewel oh yeah love that so i was rocking the jewel and i was smoking like two pods a day because i knew i was gonna quit i had this goal of quitting smoking because i wanted to start to take care of my body in order to start the process of getting pregnant like i did not want to blame my child for me having to quit smoking or drinking like immediately so I was trying to get ahead of that. And I was like, I think I need to quit Joel. But in my mind, my mind was like, we're going to quit. What the fuck? We're going to do this more and 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 more. So I was getting these migraines. My body was just depleted and exhausted. And a friend of mine, a bunch of friends of mine usually do sober January. And so I watched them do sober January and I was kind of like, you know what? I would love to do sober February. Fun fact, February is the shortest month of the year. So... <laughs> I was like, I'm kind of like getting away with like, you know, the shortest month. So I decided to just quit everything. So that was like the beginning of quitting smoking. And then it was just like, whenever I drink, I want to smoke. So why don't we just quit drinking for the month of February? And then also just not do any drugs, which was great. <clears throat> so I took this month long break and then I went down to LA to visit my friends and my friend's superpower is literally pouring drinks. <laughs> so I was breaking my one month sobriety of the shortest month of the year, but was staying with a friend who is an amazing cocktail maker. And the last night that I was there, I got so blackout. I think I maybe had like two of his drinks, <clears throat> but this is how strong they are. Mm -hmm. I was absolutely blackout. I looked at my phone the next morning. I had called like 10 people, spent many many minutes on the phone with my husband. No memory of that. Just oh none. my God. I know. I had just made a new friend like a, like that a two nights before. It was like a friend of a friend. And I had been calling him and texting him to like begging him to come over. <laughs> oh and I was just God. like, oh my God, he's never going to be my friend again. <laughs> I mean, raging headache. And then I had like spilled a cocktail all over the bed, but I... I like didn't remember how it happened. It was just like waking up and not remembering anything of like a night in, like it was a barbecue. Like we were watching RuPaul's drag race. Like why was I doing that? Right. So that to me was like, I think I never want to wake up hungover again. Mm. And that's when I was just like, I am done. I'm done with this. I think I'm going to, you know, try to walk the sober line for a little bit. And in my mind, I was like six months, one year, three years later, <laughs> I'm like pretty firmly in this camp, maybe forever. I have no idea, but it's, I, I'm just loving it. I love that. I'm never going to wake up hungover again or wake up being like, what the fuck did I do last night? Oh my God. I mean, <laughs> I know your story is super similar, right? Like you had like yes. a weird blackout. Yes. And yeah. it's crazy because like, of course that had happened so many fucking times before. Right. Like, but that was the, the one time. And at, like, as you were telling me what happened after you woke up, I felt that anxiety Ugh. of like post blackout. What the fuck happened last night? Shame spiral. It is the worst. It's the worst. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's, Thank goodness that, like, that was the time that, I don't know, it just, like, made it okay to quit. Yeah. Yes. Thank God. Right? Like, whatever lined up to get 
to get to that mind frame, like to witness it and actually be aware of what was going on is huge. What was it like for you after you quit? Cause I know like when you think for so long, that is never like a thing I would do. And then all of a sudden yeah. you're like, you know what? I'm quitting. Were you, was it hard for you? What did you do to support yourself or like, how did it go in the first yeah. couple of months? It was really tough. So I, backstory, my dad is also sober and he, I mean, growing up, he had so many, yeah, code, hello, codependent family, so much addiction. And so to watch him get sober was so fucking cool and like has changed our relationship. But I found out that when he got sober, he tried to break up with his girlfriend of 12 years so many times. I mean, he just like, he was hating himself. And I, I share that because I think of that moment uh, of like those first three months of, of me being sober as like that, but like trying to just handle it on my own during COVID in a house that's like by myself. Mm. So it was oh my God. such a tough process. So like whoever's listening and like in it, be gentle on yourself, please. Yes. But it's interesting because like I said, so my subconscious, my little smart subconscious, <laughs> while it does dumb things, it, it is a very smart mechanism and it, it was meeting all those needs. And now all of a sudden I didn't have a place to meet a need of this like high level of energy, this high level of connection, this extreme relaxation. I think relaxation and comfort are like really the top need that I was serving. And so I had to learn how to do that on my own. And that meant taking a bath every single day with like candles and er like herbs and crystals and like this it. playlist that I still listen to. That's just like this crystal sound ball. Like having the consistency to relax in a safe place, which I think the bathroom I've been reading all these pregnancy books and they talk about how women, pregnant women like block to the bathroom when they're giving birth. Cause it's just this safe place, right? Like it's, you can close the door, you can close out the rest of the world. You do your private time in there. <laughs> so I was spending a lot of time just doing that and then doing like so many healing programs. So the funny thing is I had so much free time on my hands, not just because of COVID, but like, because I wasn't like, I didn't have three hours of night where I was just getting drunk. You know what I mean? Like 12 hours of recovery the next day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, so I had so much time on my hands and my husband got a job where he, he was outside of the house for like, he was working like 10 hour days and he had an hour long commute. So he was just gone. So it was like a lot of like, holy shit. Now I need to repair my relationship with myself. It was really mm -hmm a blessing. And of course, at the time I did not see it that way, <laughs> but it was a time to really reconnect with myself, start to develop self-trust, start to develop consistency within my relationship to myself. And so with all that free time, you know, I signed up for like a manifestation program, which like w was great. I loved certain parts of it. The best parts of it were learning about attachment style and creating, like cultivating this relationship with myself because that was like such an important part of the program. So I was like journaling every night and like asking myself questions about like my relationship with money and like through all of that, like starting to do, you know, shadow work and reparenting and learning what they, what those things are. So incredible transformational time. Also cried the most ever combined in my entire life, probably. 
Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Yeah, I'm curious, how did you, like, what was your first three months? Well, so I, it sounds like you had a, a lot of support, mm, which is incredible. Mm -hmm. I was very concerned about how people would feel about my sobriety. Mm. So it was a very private thing. You know, my husband knew and he was super supportive, but I did not tell my family. I like avoided the conversation. And so it was just, it was tough because it was private and I felt like I didn't mm. have anyone to talk to about it. That's yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I was in therapy and that helped, but I, I had read a book. Oh my God. It's by Annie Grace. I can't, Fuck, I can't remember the name of it. I'll, I'll have to add that in later. But put it in the show notes. Yeah, but it'll be in the show notes. I'll figure it out. But yeah, yeah. It was basically like a a logical explanation as to why the reasons we drink are not valid, mm. and mm. it really opened my eyes to like, oh, you like the taste of wine? Well, guess what? Alcohol has formaldehyde, and it deadens your taste buds. So no, you don't. I was like, yeah. You know, we've just like trained ourselves to think we like it because our society like upholds it so much. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I had thought about because I was so lonely joining some kind of program or something. And my therapist at the time was a, a former alcoholic. So he and he was religious, which was never an issue in our therapy. I'm not religious. I'm spiritual, not religious. You know, mm. I don't go to church, but. I had a huge aversion to 12-step programs because I didn't like how they, it, it seemed to me that there was a language of disempowerment, like the whole, I'm not in control thing. I, mm. I don't like that. Um, for me, I feel like your sobriety journey, which seems like for you it was, is about who am I? And like, let me restore my power in yeah. my identity. Totally. So yeah, I was going to ask you, I'm curious what your thoughts on 12-step programs are. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So my relationship with it, you know, I was doing <laughs> this manifestation program that I was doing. It's, it's called to be magnetic. I don't want to be cagey about it. <laughs> and it had this like huge community component of it. So I, and, and that I was like cultivating that and like helping to lead the charge with that of, of hosting like weekly meetings. And I called these meetings like AA for feelings. Like yes. it's just a lot of women like getting together and being like, this is what I want. And I feel like I can't have it. And this is why. And, and, you know, we'd have group cries and it was so beautiful and lovely. So I was getting this kind of community aspect through this work. And I feel like that was kind of the replacement of AA. So right before COVID hit my therapist, I was working with a couple therapists, my husband, 
And she suggested that I go to Al-Anon or Codependence Anonymous. And I was like, why? (laughs) (laughs) Well, she's so smart. (laughs) So I looked up like a meeting that was close by. And again, this was like February. This was probably like mid-February, right? Right before COVID hit. And there was a, I think it was Al-Anon. Or codependence anonymous. Honestly, they're so similar. I have no idea. But there was a meeting nearby me and they had, they start off every meeting with like a 30 minute meditation. And I was like, I can do that. I'm super down for that. And then everyone shares and they kept the lights off when everyone shared, which I just love because it like truly made it feel like super anonymous. And it was wonderful. But again, that, that language that you're talking about of like the disempowerment and the lack of control, the identification of always starting each meeting by saying I am a codependent or, you know, I am however they started with Al-Anon. To me, it's like re reinforcing with your subconscious, like language is so important to your subconscious. Mm-hmm. And so by stating that every meeting, to me, it was just like, how are you ever going to change? Like you're reinforcing this image with your subconscious that you're still that person. And mm-hmm. it, I think it's more important, like whenever I talk about my recovering insecure attachment type, I say recovering because I want, I want my subconscious to know that we are on the road to security. Like that is the destination we are changing. So that was probably my biggest issue with the meetings. And there, it just seems like I, and I think they're great for some people, like truly, they give you that community aspect that there's so many resources that they talk about, but I walked away just feeling like this incredible amount of guilt and shame Mm -hmm. that I wasn't sure that group was going to be able to help me process because it felt like the group was matching that level of guilt and shame, if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. And I'm glad you said too, like, I don't want to take anything away from, if these groups are helping you, that's incredible. Like whatever works for you works for you. Yes. I do wish that there were groups though, where that identification piece wasn't so fundamental to the whole operation. Fundamental. Um, yes. Ingrained. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you got to make change. Yeah. 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 And that has to be the purpose of the group. Like we're yeah. not just here to talk about how much, like how powerless we are. Right. Um, right. But I think the piece about attachment styles is so important because that's actually what helped me really start to make change, I think, was mm. recognizing I was codependent and for me, anxiously attached. And I'm not an expert on these things. So I'm not sure if like what the hierarchy is here, like if codependency is a part of anxious attachment or if mm. like how they're different, are they the same thing? Great question. Yeah. Great question. Yeah. So I'll just quickly go over the attachment types for anyone's listening that we're catching you up on what this is. So attachment theory is basically a system that helps us to understand how we attach to our caregivers as children. And there's four types. The first one is secure. And that's, you know, that oftentimes referred to as like the anchor type. These people are are like the roots of a tree is what I like to think about. Mm -hmm. They're very secure in themselves. Um, if they're in a situation where they feel like triggered or something, you know, like something's not going their way, they're not making up stories about what is going on. They're just like, oh, this person's upset. Okay. That's their, you know, that's their deal. Mm -hmm. I'm over here with my feelings and I'm fine. 
and we're going to work through this. <laughs> so they can like, it's not that they don't get triggered, but they come back to like homeostasis very quickly. And they're great to have around to help you heal insecure attachment types. <laughs> they're wonderful. The fun, the fun ones, which I'm really into are the insecure attachment types. So you mentioned anxious, preoccupied. This is kind of more of an energy of really high need, high, high need for connection. So oftentimes these people will like sacrifice their own needs in order to feel connected to somebody. These people are like always texting back very quickly. It's kind of like a dog paddly energy mm -hmm. of I need you, I need you, I need you to be around, which is beautiful in its own way. And it's like, you are not responsible at all for your attachment type. So like if anyone is judging themselves right now, just let that go. Let let that sink in. You didn't, you didn't make this. This is not your fault, but it is your responsibility to heal for sure. Mm. Yeah. So, so that's the anxious type. So dismissive avoidant is kind of a more independent person They They need their freedom. They need their space. They really struggle with sharing emotions. They think they're really good at setting boundaries, but really when you look at it, they're setting like really small boundaries because they don't want to deal with the conflict mm. of setting a boundary. So these people don't tend to have codependency as an issue. Really what their issue is, is more hyper-independence. And so they, they need to like open up to trust people a little bit more. Mm. They get a bad rap. I lean dismissive avoidant. I'm here to apologize to all the anxious preoccupied out there that have had to deal with us, but like... <laughs> We mean well. We mean well. Again, it's just the trauma that we experienced as children. So in the middle is the disorganized or the fearful avoidant attachment type. And these people dealt usually with trauma in their childhood, abuse, and they, they're they worried and that they can't trust anyone, really. <laughs> no big deal. <laughs> but they couldn't trust their caretaker growing up, so why would they trust anyone as an adult? They have this, like, they have both sides of the insecure attachment type. So they'll flip from anxious to dismissive inconsistently. Sometimes there's a pattern if you really look at it, but sometimes there's no pattern. They're often described as, like, hot and cold and all of these attachment types really just want to feel safety. Like they just, at the core of it is this need for safety and consistency. So we got that each one of them, we go about it in very specific, distinct ways um, that are kind of outdated and we need to reprogram and heal those so that we're getting them in a more healthy way. But the two types that really deal with codependency to get back to your original question is anxious, preoccupied, and they're fearful, avoidant. And that's because they are so concerned with, the anxious is so concerned with other people's needs and their, you know, their state of being in order to have that connection. And then the fearful avoidant is so hyper vigilant of like, how's everyone feeling? What's going, is anyone going to flip emotions? Like, am I safe? Like constantly scanning the room knowing exactly like where you stand in certain friendships compared to other people. These are all like very, very common anxious, fearful, avoidant tendencies. Yeah. That is so fascinating. Um, I, when I think about, so, you know, I see the anxious lens through my perspective because I know that's me and my husband is a fearful avoidant, which is like oh, wow. common, right? Like that we kind of yeah. like, 
Yes. Or like magnets to each other. Yep. Yep. I never thought about how that type has codependent tendencies because they do seem hyper individual. And yet he is so preoccupied with how everybody else feels about him. Are they judging me? You know, that's a thing that comes up a lot. Oh, and it's I feel that one right here. <laughs> like, oh, I feel that one. Yes. I'm like, no, they're not, but it feels that way. Yeah, it's really hard to let go of. And I'm just kind of like putting these pieces together as you're talking about, you know, we were talking about how with addiction, you really it, it robs you of your identity in a lot mm. of ways. Mm. And I think that's how attachment theory kind of comes into the picture here, because I also think healing from or recovering from these like disordered attachment, what would you call it? Like approaches. Mm. It's really about learning who you are and what your needs are. Right. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. This to me. And that's the number one thing of attachment theory is, or attachment strategies. I like to call them strategies mm -hmm. because like you're using the strategy to get a need met, but it's just in an outdated way. Right. Mm -hmm. So codependently we're, we're concerned about other people's feelings. We put their needs above our own. We don't set our own boundaries because we want to have that connection, but our need there, the base need is connection. So it's like, how can I get, how can I still feel connected? Usually, especially for anxious and fearful avoidance, how can I start to have connection with myself in order to start to have connection from outside sources? Yes. And, and it is such a paradox and I still deal with that now. And I think, you know, I think recovery is ongoing. Yes. Like it's, yes. And so I've, I've accepted that. I'm okay with that. But <laughs> How then, hard was it to accept that at first? <laughs> because yes. as you said, like, I want connection deeply, yeah. like, oh my God, please, let's just all get along. And yeah. when you set a boundary, it is very painful at first. Oh, um, so and even painful. now, like something as simple as, you know, I'll tell this story and I, fuck, I might cut it out. Who knows? We'll see. I'm but, so excited. <laughs> so there's someone in my life who is recovering from drugs and someone else that we're close with was asking me to go to a, an event for them. And this person who's recovering, we haven't, we're basically strangers. Like we haven't mm. spoken in at least five years, I would say. And I did not feel comfortable going to this event. So I said, no, I can't go. And to me, you know, I, part of me, like I would say the codependent part of me, the people pleasing part of me felt guilty about that. Mm -hmm. And then the part of me that was like, whatever you want to call it, like the more securely attached, perhaps the more independent, the more like healed part of myself, even you could say was like, you don't have to do that. Like yep. <laughs> it doesn't yes. make you a bad person for saying no. And so I, I said, no. And that person that invited me was like, why not? And I was like, oh. <laughs> you're like, ah, worst nightmare coming true. <laughs> so stressful. And I just, I, I, I don't even remember what I said. Just, I can't. Yeah. And they said, okay, I'll let them, you know, like really sarcastically, I'll let wow. them know. And I don't know, just little tests like that. They're so hard because all I want is to like be connected to these people. And I do want that person to know that I support them in re their recovery. Mm -hmm, but I also mm -hmm. like, I recognize that if I don't take care of myself, I cannot be there for them. Right. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. 
first of all, wait, I just want to salute you for setting a boundary. That is so huge. <laughs> Thank how you. hard was it to say no? Like how long did you think about it before you said no? You know, I didn't think about it too long because I knew in my gut that I could not go to this event. Like mm. I just, I couldn't. And I think a year or two ago, it would have taken me longer to say no. I mm. probably would have said yes, just because I wouldn't have known how to mm -hmm. say no. Mm -hmm. But I, I just knew that like it was going to be too much for me. So yeah, good for you. I mean, amazing. That's huge. And like, I love that you're saying that a year ago, like, look how much progress you've made in a year. I'm just, especially for anyone that leans anxious attached, like setting boundaries and small steps, like really taking it in stride and knowing that like, this is a process and it's going to take a while to the point before you're to the point where you're like, that's a hard no for me <laughs> immediately. Like, and then when someone is trying to guilt you into going, you say, I can't like, these are incredible, incredible systems and boundaries that you're setting up for yourself and like Thank way you. to meet your own needs. That's like, that is the key to success here, right? Like you trust yourself enough to know what you can and can't handle in an event. And, you know, I will say just in case anyone out there is like, damn, is it really that easy? I did have to ask many other people for validation. I'm not an mm, asshole, right? <laughs> totally, 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 totally. I love that. So you had, so you were like, okay. It does it is it just, is this okay if I'm not going to this event? Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that because then you're kind of still meeting your need for connection in a way. Do you see like you're like yeah. do you approve of this? Like, are you cool with that? And like you're so you're getting connected to other people and still being able to say no to someone else. And you know what else? Like when people react that way to a boundary, and it sucks because this person that invited me that had that reaction is someone I love so dearly and mm. really want a close connection with. But the more things like that happen, the more I recognize that kind of relationship is not available right mm. now. And maybe mm. it will be later, but it kind of makes me more okay with it because this connection that I want from them so badly, like I can't get it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's huge. Also recognizing that is like why, you know, why put your effort into something or some, someone that maybe you can't trust as much. And won't respect a boundary. Exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's so, it took me the, my boundary exposure work also helped me accept boundaries when people were setting them. I don't know. Did you ever struggle with boundaries that were placed on you before? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I sucked at it. Boundaries in my family are like, no, we don't do that. <laughs> so when someone put a boundary on me, I would, I would fight it. I would ignore it. I would try to control it, manipulate it. Like oh, yeah. all the things that I felt again, like I was getting that connection from them, right? There's that need coming up again. And so the learning to set boundaries also helped me to learn to accept other people's boundaries, which is huge. Absolutely. I have a question. I'm curious what yeah. your thoughts are on this. So part of, as I was learning to do this, and I'm still learning to do this, as we're saying, I kind of realized how the precedent societally is to have no boundaries, mm. at least from where I stand. Like, that's kind of what I noticed. And I'm just curious what, like, our social conditioning has to do with this conversation from your point yeah. of view. 
Oh my God. I mean, I think women are social. Anyone that's socialized as female is taught to, (laughs) it's not just growing up in a codependent family. It's not just growing up with a hella trauma. Like we are taught as women and as females to put the needs of others above ours, to constantly be aware of what else, how the group is doing. Right. And that's part of that safety. Like one of our core needs as human beings is connection to be in a community, right. To be safe in our tribe. So it's not surprising that this, these are the strategies that we've created in order to feel safe. But then society puts this additional layer onto us of like, always smile, like always make sure that everyone else is having a great time. And along, like when you learn those things, you're also learning that your needs are not important, right? Mm -hmm. No means no. Like how many, how many times have you heard that and thought, oh, I've been in so many situations where I said no. And the person I was talking to just assumed it was a yes, or just assumed that I didn't know what I wanted. I mean, we're, we're, we're healing deep cultural wounds, like deep, deep, deep cultural wounds. So I think that part, part of it, it really is childhood programming. And also part of it totally comes from society. What do you think? I mean, definitely, definitely. And I think that is important to talk about here because it adds another layer of complexity and also difficulty to the healing process because, you know, hopefully there's some support and there. Actually, I shouldn't even say it like that. There's always a support community for people recovering from addiction, recovering from an insecure attachment style. There's always support out there. But if in your immediate group, in your family, your friends, there isn't support, that is really challenging because there's also not a lot of societal support. Like there's not a lot of stuff in society that's helping facilitate this healing or encouraging you to have boundaries. I think about work too. Like I'm a public school teacher and Mm. we have like, I I feel like public education works because the majority of teachers have no boundaries with their work. (laughs) And and what gender are the majority of the teachers? Women. Yeah. Like I would say over, I've seen the statistic before it's over 80%. And I feel like it's probably Mm. more than that. Mm. Uh, I mean, I completely agree. So I used to work in nonprofits, which is a majority female career. And I feel like I found that career. It matched my level of perfectionism. Like I I was such a perfectionist, still in recovering, such a perfectionist. And so I found this career where I could feel like I was helping the world, helping to save the world, make a difference. And also be at this high level, this insane impossible level of perfectionism because it matched who I was internally. And like, it's, there's very like few boundaries. So hard to set like, okay, I'm going to stop working at this time. Like when you start to make those changes in the nonprofit world, you're really like rocking the boat. (laughs) No one does that. So it's, I feel you so hard. And I'm, I'm curious how many other like different sectors are out there that are completely run by women that are burnt out dealing with a a lot of these things that we're talking about of, of not, not being able to set boundaries in the workplace. It's so hard. Have you, how, how, how have you shown up differently in your workplace? Well, it's been tough because I am also a recovering perfectionist. Mm. Um, And so part of it has been leaving work at work, which I don't, I can't always do. 
it's really hard to do that when you are in front of kids and you are meeting with kids and you're meeting with adults. Like there's just so much to do. So part of it has been about like lowering my own standards of like, actually, you don't need to rewrite those slides again. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they're fine. Yeah, um, good. You really don't even need the fucking slides. Like just show up and <laughs> teach something. Like it's fine. I love that. <laughs> um, we don't, you don't, you know? And so it's yeah. been about me recognizing like, how am I imposing this on myself? How am I like mm. maintaining this norm? And then really like sitting and being okay with the anxiety of doing things differently, which I feel like is wow. applicable to, like, even if we're talking about something totally different, like when you want to change a behavior, you're recovering from anything at all. <clears throat> excuse me. It's about being okay with the uncomfortable feelings that are going to happen. After. Yeah. Yeah. It's making that container bigger. Like you, what you were talking about earlier when you were talking about setting that boundary and you still felt guilty after you set the boundary, but your container for that guilt of that, like, Oh shit, I just disappointed someone. And now I can tell they're about to guilt me or even maybe before they responded. Like, let's just say like, as soon as you said, now you're like crushing guilt, right? Your container was big enough to hold it where you didn't self-sacrifice your need. You didn't put anyone else's needs above your own. And like, fuck, I'm about to have a kid. And what I've heard from parenting is the guilt is just nonstop. <laughs> so my work, I feel like my work that I've been preparing for this is to widen my own container of guilt so that when I'm unable to pack that lunch or I'm unable to offer that after school activity, whatever it might be, I'm like, this sucks. I can't do this. And I have to live with this. Like I have to be able to hold that guilt and then eventually heal it so that guilt isn't the first thing coming up. But like baby steps here, <laughs> you know? Yeah. How would you encourage people to start building that muscle? Mm. So I used to do a, a guilt and shame exercise. This is transformative for me, especially for anyone that's like more anxious or fearful avoidant. Every night before I went to bed, I would just map out like, four, four different shifts during the day. So like nine to noon, noon to four, four to eight. And I would just map out any time that I felt guilt or shame, especially because the fearful avoidant is so prone, the codependent really so prone to guilt and shame. And so as soon as I started writing it, I, would, I realized how often I was feeling it throughout the day. Like it was just, it was my best friend. Like it was just constantly there. And I would write out the scenario. So I would explain to myself what, why I was feeling the thing that I was feeling. And then I would start to equilibrate it, which means I would start to try to feel the opposite emotion. So I would try to find where I was either innocent or being courageous. Ooh. I know. <laughs> so, so writing out like, oh, you know, I remember in one of those meetings that I was just talking about that I was in my AA for feelings meetings, I, something happened where a person with with they, them pronouns came on and I mislabeled their pronouns and I guilted myself for the rest of the meeting. Like, I was just like, I can't believe I did that. You know, I've worked with these, with this population for so many years and I'm still making this mistake. I'm so embarrassed. And I realized like at the end of the meeting that I had been, instead of focusing on the meeting, <laughs> just mm -hmm. in my own little guilt spiral. <laughs> and so starting to equilibrate it and say, I was courageously trying to connect with that person. I was courageously corrected when I did the wrong pronoun. 
And, you know, and I'm courageously trying to do better. Like I, I'm not just like, Oh, that's their problem. Like they need to worry about that. And I, you know, I'm actually caring about fixing it so that in the future I can label them properly. Right. Mm -hmm. So finding that courage in the tiniest, like as soon as you start doing this exercise every day, then you'll start to get into kind of the minutia and you're like, wow, I can't even believe that this is like what my brain is focused on spending so much time on every day, but that equilibration starts to build. And like after 21 days, it's kind of the thing that you're going to, instead of, instead of going to like your old friend's guilt and shame, you're like, Oh my God, what am I courageously doing today? Or like, what, you know, what am I innocently trying to achieve today that that before I would judge. So eventually right. it builds over time, but guilt and shame are like old, old, old friends. So it's taken a while to heal. But you know what that exercise reminds me of is that like our perspectives are so subjective and we forget that all the time. Yes. We think what yes. we think is so objective and factual and that it's really like a process of reframing and like, actually, what are the other ways to see this that don't make me feel like an asshole? And yes. actually I'm not an asshole yes. I'm doing my best. Uh, so I, I just love that so much because it's so much more expansive and empowering. Yeah. Yeah. Just reframe. And I feel like when people are saying, you know, what would a secure person do? That's, this is, that's the step. Like a secure person would try to figure out where they were trying, where they were doing their best, you know, they wouldn't fall into that guilt and shame primarily. So that's when I, when, when people are like, well, you know, how do I get to that secure place? How do I be that, you know, which is a long, long, long-term destination, <laughs> <laughs> but that's just like one of the ways that you can start to reframe it. Yeah. I love it. And yeah. kind of similarly, like, how do you, knowing that this is a day-to-day -day choice and such a long journey of recovery that many of us will just be on like for the rest of our lives probably. Yep. Yep. Um, how do you accept that? That's kind of a huge question. <laughs> I love that. I love that question. I do. I, I, I mean, to me, this brings up like soul work and past lives and my next life, even if, you know, sometimes I'm like, is there even a next life? And then I'm like, oh, I can't really think about it. I just have to assume there is, you know, like there's <laughs> some bigger things going on out in the world that, that I love to think about. And then, and then I get obsessed and then I'm like, okay, I just gotta let it go. So my current take is that to get to a place where you feel grateful about your upbringing in order to learn and heal and grow is so incredibly powerful. And that doesn't mean that you have to forgive your caregivers. I'm not saying that at all. Like that is not a requirement, but being able to say, I have learned so much from this and here's how I'm healing and growing is like such a gift, such a gift. So to me, I'm like, you know, I'm not hundred percent there. I'm going to be real with you. I'm not like, Oh, I'm so glad that I grew up with abuse in my family. Like, no, I'm not there yet. But I can say that I am so grateful to have learned these tools and to have had those experiences because I understand where so many people are coming from. 
there's so much suffering in the world. There's so much trauma in the world. And because of my past experiences, there's a group of people out there that I can relate to. So I'm super, super grateful for that. And that's kind of how, that's kind of how I look at, you know, new things that come up in my life, new challenges, new struggles, new trauma. I'm like, oh, how am I learning from this? And how can I take this and help others from it so that, you know, we're all healing as a whole world together. That's my goal. Absolutely. And it makes meaning out of these things that are terrible and really no one should have to endure and go through. But the reality yeah. is we do and other people but we do. do. And if we can use it for good, then yeah. like, then great. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I completely agree. And I really struggled with, at first when I started doing this work, I was just, everything was so black and white, which is such an insecure way of thinking, right? It's our seven-year-old brain on autopilot just thinking in these like black and white terms of like war is bad. And like, yes, it is. And it sucks. And it like, why is there so much suffering in the world? And we're all humans doing human things. So like, if it's a human thing, can, you know, how can we judge that? So it's really taking the judgment out of everything, I suppose. I love it. Yeah. Now I know you are finishing up a program right now. Yeah. About yes. attachment styles. Like, tell us about it. Yes. So I'm taking the integrated attachment theory coaching program with personal development school. Huge shout out to them. I've learned so much and healed so much in my life. And so I'm really excited to bring this coaching to the world. And really it starts with needs <laughs> in case, in case you didn't hear the thesis statement of the conversation, <laughs> it's all about needs. So I'm really excited to just help insecure attachment types heal and try to find that deep well of confidence in themselves so that they're setting boundaries, just like Dana and having a bigger container for guilt and shame, but really just to show up in the world like authentically and as bravely and safely as they possibly can. Amazing. Yeah. And you'll be, when this airs, you'll be on maternity. Yeah, we're time leave. traveling. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'll be on maternity leave. So if you're interested in working with me, you can sign up for my coaching wait list and you will be the first to know when my calendar is open, what kind of offerings I'll be doing. So you can sign up there at sarahcohan.com forward slash coaching. I spell my name S-A-R-A-H-C-O-H-A-N.com forward slash coaching. And then I'm also the host of the Lit AF podcast. So if you're interested in healing and spirituality through the attachment lens, really I dig into like what each like attachment style need is through things like tarot, astrology. Dana's going to be on Dana was on, we're forward now. <laughs> Dana was on in, in August or yeah, she does an amazing astral report. We talk about sobriety. It's so fun. You can check out that episode, but yeah, it's just a super fun place to kind of heal with, you know, your attachment style in mind. Yes. And guys, Sarah's hilarious too. So <laughs> if you want to laugh while you heal, yes. which like, why, we need to laugh. Like this yes. does I really appreciate that about you because healing is like, it's hard. It's heavy. Oh, so and hard. we should, I don't know. Sometimes we just need some levity. So I yes. really appreciate that. Oh my God. Thank you. Thank you. It's so important to me. I don't do anything unless I'm having fun. So yeah. So yeah, come check it out. It's available on like any, any podcast app. Just lit AF. 
We'll have it linked to in the in the show Sweet. notes. Let's <laughs> put it in the show notes. Yeah, I love well, it. Thank you so much, Sarah. This was like an amazing conversation. I know mm. it's going to help a lot of people, and you're the shit. Thanks. Thank you. Oh my god, Danny, you're the shit. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> yeah, it's just so fun to connect with you. Yay.